female folk singer is dead after she was attacked by a pair of coyotes. What is the monkey doing? Tell me what's going on. He ripped her face off! We actually have a trainer in the water with one of our whales. If I show weakness, if I retreat, I may be hurt, I may be killed. Baby Azaria Chamberlain was taken by a dingo back in 1980. Hey, get me out. <clears throat> Vocal warm-ups out of the way. Ah. Meh. <clears throat> Meh. 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 The scary lion chewed the poor boy's testicles. Fuck. Fuck. Oh, fuck. It's a scary dolphin come to chew on my testicles. Okay, that's good. Welcome back, everybody, to Man. It is the only true crime podcast on the internet where all the killers are real animals, whether it's biting, scratchings, maulings, or clawings. I'm here to talk about it. I'm your host, James Chapman, a.k.a. Jimothy Chaps, a.k.a. Jimbalaya, a.k.a. Old racist Papa Jim. Uh, And I do want to clarify, I did say the only true crime podcast on the internet uh, you know, there are other animal attack podcasts. You should listen to them. They're not as good as this one, but they are they are out there. Um, but this one's the only one that cleverly uses true crime as a marketing tactic, despite the problematic nature of our relationship with true crime. Uh, welcome back, everybody, to a new episode, a great episode, an episode I've been excited to talk to you about for months. Um, this episode... We are talking about two uh, fatal, scary, gruesome bear attacks that occurred in Glacier National Park nearly 50 years ago. Um, I read this book. This book was sent to me nearly a year ago. Um, I read it on on a plane trip to Melbourne about three months ago and was so gripped by the story, uh, but I haven't had really a chance to sort of sit down and and translate the book into an episode. Um, And uh, yeah, no, this is going to be a good one. Spoiler alert, this one is going to be one of the pretty good ones. The other episodes, eh, kind of shitty, but this one's going to be good. Um, Before we get into the story, though, it's important to, you know, uh, talk about the source. The source material, uh, the major source for this episode is Death in Glacier National Park, Stories of Accidents and Foolhardiness in the Crown of the Continent by Randy Mintor. It's a great book. I've read through the whole thing. Um, We're only going to be talking about a section of it, um, the section that relates to bear attacks in the national park, Um, but there's a lot of other stuff in here, some really interesting chapters I might go back and look at. There's uh, treacherous waters, people who've drowned, um, you know... uh, more than the heart can bear, which I assume is about heart attacks, um, like avalanches, falling objects, small aircraft deaths, suicides. Um, it's all in here. It's a great book. You can purchase it on Amazon, which I recommend you doing. Uh, this is the second uh, book I've read about national parks in America that talk about the deaths uh, due to animal attacks. The first being the first episode we actually did uh, this year, which was Death in Yellowstone, which was a similar book um, <clears throat> that chronicled deaths due to many different animals. This book only talks about bear attacks. Um, but that's okay because the stories that it goes into are pretty brutal, uh, they're pretty gory, and, uh, I'm gonna put a little spoiler alert warning, um, you know, the other podcast I really love is, um, Last Podcast on the Left, and when they do a, uh, really brutal story, they, they call it a gold star episode, they put a gold star warning on it, um, I'm gonna do that, I don't wanna steal their thing and call it a gold star warning, um, we're gonna, what are we gonna do instead of a gold star, um, we're going to put a stamp of approval on this one. It's a red stamp. It's a red stamp episode, folks. Uh, this one's going to be gory, so prepare for that. Um, and I don't want to waffle on too much... M- blue waffle. <laughs> Never mind. Uh, I'm not going to waffle on too much longer. Let's get into the story. Death in Glacier National Park. So before we get into the actual deaths that have occurred in Glacier National Park, let's let's talk about Glacier National Park itself. So nestled in the rugged terrain of Montana's Rocky Mountains, Glacier National Park stands as a testament to nature's grandeur and untamed beauty. Spanning over a million acres of pristine wilderness, this national park is a paradise for outdoor enthusiasts, wildlife aficionados, and adventure seekers. 
With its awe-inspiring landscapes, diverse ecosystems and abundant wildlife, Glacier National Park offers an unparalleled experience for those seeking solace in the heart of nature. Established in 1910, Glacier National Park is renowned for its magnificent glaciers, deep blue lakes, towering mountain peaks and its lush forests. The park's name itself pays homage to the once numerous glaciers that shaped the landscape, though sadly many of them have receded due to climate change. Despite this, the park remains a captivating destination, drawing visitors from around the world to witness its natural wonders. One of the park's most iconic features is the Going to the Sun Road, a scenic highway that traverses the park and offers breathtaking vistas at every turn. Winding through alpine meadows, ancient forests, and along the edges of sheer cliffs, this engineering marvel provides visitors with unparalleled views of the surrounding mountains and glaciers. Travelling this road is a rite of passage for anyone exploring Glacier National Park, offering a visual feast that showcases the park's diverse landscapes. And Glacier National Park, along with Yellowstone National Park and Yosemite, are both on my bucket list to do. I've never even been to America, um, but man, going to all your national parks is like a huge, uh, huge bucket list item for me. So if anyone um, would like to pay for me to travel to the United States and... Um, you know, pay for my accommodation and pay for me to, I don't know, visit the parks. More than happy to do that. I'll, uh, what can I give you back? I don't know. A mug? We don't even have merchandise yet, but when we do, you can have a mug. Glacier National Park is a haven for outdoor activities, catering to both beginners and seasoned adventurers. Hiking enthusiasts can choose from a myriad of trails that vary in difficulty, from leisurely strolls through the wildflower-filled meadows to challenging ascents up rugged peaks. The Highline Trail, a favourite amongst hikers, offers panoramic views of the park and a chance to witness the park's diverse wildlife, including grizzly bears. For those seeking a more intimate experience with nature, backcountry camping is also a popular choice. The park boasts numerous back counties... <laughs> backcountry campsites nestled beside pristine lakes and beside towering peaks, providing a scenic atmosphere for campers to connect with the wilderness. Fishing enthusiasts can cast their lines in the park's crystal clear waters where trout and other native fish species abound, making for a rewarding angling experience. Photographers also flock to Glacier National Park to capture its dramatic landscapes and vibrant wildlife. Sunrise and sunset paint the sky with hues of pink, orange, and purple, casting a magical glow over the mountains and lakes. The park's diverse flora, including wildflowers, lichens, and ancient trees, create a captivating tapestry of colors that change with the seasons, offering endless opportunities for photographers to capture the park's natural beauty. Glacier National Park is not only a sanctuary for wildlife, but also a living laboratory for scientists and researchers. The park's diverse ecosystems, ranging from alpine meadows to dense forests, provide valuable insights into the delicate balance of nature. Scientists study the park's flora and fauna, gaining essential knowledge about climate change, biodiversity, and conservation efforts. Glacier National Park serves as a vital refuge for threatened and endangered species, emphasizing the importance of preserving this wild wilderness for future, future generations. Beyond its natural wonders, Glacier National Park is also steeped in cultural significance. The park is home to historical chalets and lodges, showcasing rustic architecture that harkens back to a bygone era. The Native American presence in the region dates back thousands of years, and their cultural heritage is celebrated through interpretive programs and exhibits. Visitors can learn about the indigenous peoples who have called this land home, gaining a deeper understanding of the park's rich history and cultural diversity. In addition to its natural and cultural attractions, Glacier National Park offers a wide range of amenities for visitors. Campgrounds, visitor centers, and lodges provide comfortable accommodations while ranger-led programs and guided tours enhance the visitor experience. Whether you're an adventure seeker, a relaxer, or educational enricher, Glacier National Park caters to all interests, ensuring a memorable and fulfilling stay. Now, as one of the crown jewels in America's national park system, Glacier National Park continues to inspire and captivate all of those who venture within its boundaries. 
Its rugged beauty, diverse ecosystems, and abundant wildlife make it a haven for nature enthusiasts and a testament to the importance of preserving our own natural heritage. Whether you're embarking on a challenging hike, capturing the perfect photograph, or simply reveling in the tranquility of the wilderness, Glacier National Park invites you to immerse yourself in its splendor and discover the magic of this pristine wilderness wonderland. Now that might have sounded like uh, an infomercial, an advertisement for Glacier National Park, and they're not sponsoring the episode. I don't even know if wildlife, if uh, if national parks can sponsor podcast episodes. I don't think that has ever happened once. But if it does, I'd love it to be me. Uh, it is, you know, it sounds like a great place, but it's also fraught with dangers. One of those dangers is bear attacks. Bear attacks in Glacier National Park, like any other bear habitat, are rare, but can be a serious concern for visitors. The park is home to both black bears and grizzly bears, and while these creatures generally avoid human interaction, encounters can still happen, especially if visitors are not cautious or aware of their surroundings. Park authorities take significant measures to educate visitors about bear safety and to implement protocols to minimize potential risks. Grizzly bears, in particular, are known for their protective nature, especially if and when they have cubs. If a grizzly bear perceives a threat, it may respond defensively. Black bears, too, can react aggressively if they feel threatened or unprovoked. However, black bear attacks are significantly less dangerous than brown bear and grizzly bear attacks. Understanding bear behavior and following recommended safety guidelines is crucial for visitors to minimize the risk of bear attacks in Glacier National Park. And even though they are rare, encounters with bears in the park do happen. For hundreds of years, humans and bears shared the land that would become the National Park with very few altercations. Despite close proximity, potentially dangerous encounters between people and bears remained at a minimum. There are stories of bears charging at hikers when they came across one in the wild, but most of these stories involve campers spotting bears well away from popular areas. If a bear did approach a person, the old cliche, they're more afraid of you than you are of them, it seemed to ring true more often than not. There had been scattered reports of bear-related injuries over the 57 years since the park was founded in 1910, but a peaceful cohabitation between species seemed to exist as long as both kept a responsible distance away from each other. This all changed one night in the summer of 1967, with an attack that eventuated in the shattering of any notion that homo sapiens and bears could ever keep a peaceful relationship for granted. Fires burned through the park on Saturday, August 12th, 1967, the result of dramatic electrical storms that had rolled through the valley. More than 100 lightning strikes had hit the park, setting ablaze particularly dry parts of the forest and humbling mammoth trees that were unlucky enough to come between the ground and the sky. The blazes did not deter determined hikers and campers from exploring granite, and so the Granite Park Chalet fed a capacity crowd and entertained them at dusk with a viewing party of five grizzly bears that frequented the open dump behind the park. While an open dump in the middle of a beautiful national park, it might sound strange to today's sensibilities, at the time, trash dumps were all the rage. The park had thousands and thousands of visitors a year, and rather than guests leaving garbage where they camped, the park encouraged visitors to make use of large trash dumps in centralized locations. The National Park Service would soon learn from this mistake, and today, they warn against leaving food out to attract bears. If you camp, you must keep your, bear, your food in bear-safe containers, and rangers will instruct you on the safest ways to keep your camp safe without leaving your footprint. Many park personnel had visited the chalet recently, and manager Tom Walton believed that he may have received a few subtle, subtle messages from them warning that tourists really shouldn't be feeding the bears, although they all understood why it was such a spectacle. At this point, there had never really been a close encounter with a grizzly bear near the hotel, 
And so the rangers were more relaxed about this behaviour than they would have been if it were occurring elsewhere, such as the campground 20 miles away at Lake Trout. Here, witnesses had reported that a particularly strange-looking bear with a thin, mangy coat and elongated head had entered campsites repeatedly and raided them for food. While bears would often enter campsites after campers left, this specific bear had been known to tear up backpacks, tents, and sleeping bags and chew its way into canned food. In July of that same year, two 14-year-old boys named John Cook and Steve Ashcock had to call off their weekend camping trip when a bear entered their camp looking for food and refused to leave, even when pelted with rocks from the boys. Other trout-like campers, such as a troop of six Girl Scouts and their leaders, had to abandon their plans after a bear, matching the description of the trout Lake Grizzly, pilfered their food and belongings. A young couple on their honeymoon also watched as the bear savaged their gear and supplies. When these witnesses reported their concern to park rangers, they were often met with amusement, unconcern, or even boredom in some cases. The season had been unusually busy, and it's possible that the rangers were stretched too thin to make the connection between these encounters and to pick up on the subtle warning signs of what was to come. In the second weekend of August that year, veteran park employees Julie Helgeson and Roy Ducat selected the Granite Park Chalet campground as the location for their overnight camp. They had previously laughed off concern from friends about the dangers of bears being in the area, stating that there had never been a close call in this area of the park. Ducat was a sophomore from Ohio, studying biology at Bowling Green University in Minnesota, and was currently working as a busboy in the lodge. Helgeson was also a sophomore at the University of Minnesota, and she met Roy while working in the laundry of the same lodge. The two had hit it off, and planned what would be Julie's first ever overnight hike in the park. They hitchhiked to the trailhead at Logan Pass, and hiked by foot to the Granite Park Chalet. They wreckied the area for about an hour, and selected their camping spot for the night. Sometime after midnight on August 13th, horrifying screams for help echoed around Granite Park Chalet. It was so unusual for any sound to break the silence at that time of night that it took several guests multiple attempts to convince staff of the hotel that they'd heard shrieks below. Still under the misapprehension that a bear had simply wandered into the campsite and frightened some of the female campers, one of the hotel managers, Tom Walton, led a squad of 13 people made up of staff and some brave guests about 500 metres down to the campground. No one could have been prepared for what they saw at the end of the trail. Roy Ducat, wrapped in another camper's sleeping bag, lay bleeding and squirming on the ground as several other campers sat on a roof of a cabin, their single flashlight beam weakened by their attempts to signal for help. Roy told the horrific story of waking up in the middle of the night and coming face to face with Julie, who whispered desperately to play dead. Still coming to from unconsciousness, Roy suddenly felt himself being swiped, swiped sideways as the bear's massive paw knocked both campers a full two meters away. Another camper later described the bear's foul odor as, quote, as though a dozen dirty sheepdogs had come in from the rain. In an amazing feat of self-containment, Roy somehow managed to remain silent as the bear's fangs pierced his shoulder and continued his silence as its teeth ripped through his left arm and tore away the meat of both of his legs. When the bear turned its attention to Julie, she let out a scream when the bear ripped into her body. It took Roy a moment to realise that her screams were becoming more and more distant. The bear was dragging Julie off in her sleeping bag down the hill. By some miracle, Roy managed to leap up and run to the first sleeping campus he could find, and awoke hiker Donald Gullett, who saw Roy bleeding profusely from his wounds and sprung into action. He wrapped the boy 
in his sleeping bag and woke up fellow campers Robert and Janet Klein, who used the escape route they had prepared earlier to climb on top of a nearby cabin. After some time trying to signal to the chalet with flashlights, they finally heard someone call down to them. Is everything okay? No. Bear, the clients shouted back. The rescue party, led by Tom Walton, was still unaware of what had happened as they headed down the track moments later. Their party included two doctors and a young park ranger. This ranger, Joan Devereux, had her wits about her and remembered to bring the short-range radio along for the journey. When they arrived at the campground and saw a near-dead Reuter cat covered in blood, the rescuers sprung into action. Dr. Olgrid Linden, a medical professor from Western Reserve University, provided first aid to Roy and prepared him for a rough trip back up the trail on a makeshift stretcher. Despite his grievous injuries, Roy showed little to no regard for his own life, instead insisting that the party locate and save Julie. After a heated debate, Walton and Devereux agreed that searching in pitch-black night while a man-eating bear was lurking in the shadows was an easy recipe for another mauling, and as no one was armed with anything more than a pocket knife for self-defense, the reluctant decision was made that the group should evacuate back to the chalet for safety, abandoning Julie for the moment. Back at the hotel, surgeon John Lipinski and his wife Anne, who was a registered nurse, began setting up a makeshift, op- makeshift operating room for Roy using what limited supplies they could find. Another guest came forward and identified himself as a military physician and offered to assist. The three worked, tires- tire- <laughs> the three worked tirelessly to try and treat Roy's wounds and to try to ease his state of shock. Devereux made several calls on the radio until finally making contact with other authorities and obtained a promise that a helicopter would be on its way in 10 minutes. Knowing that landing a helicopter in a busy campsite in the darkness of the northern wilderness would be a dangerous uh, proposition, she recruited more campers to create a safe landing area for the pilot. She then directed these volunteers to light four fires around the area and keep those fires burning until the chopper landed. The campers kept a watchful eye on their bonfires and prevented any stray embers from flying off and setting ablaze the forest next to them. This prevented an even bigger disaster at the chalet that night. 28-year-old pilot John Westover later told the Helena Independent Record that it was an eerie sight and quite a haze that spread over the area because of the forest fires when I went in. The flight turned out to be one of three that he would embark on that night. Volunteers unloaded medical supplies that Westover had brought in with him and rushed them to the chalet's dining area, which had become the Lipinski Operating Theatre. Within five minutes, Westover was back in the air with a heavily bandaged critical condition Roy Ducat, now off to a hospital in Kalispell. Meanwhile, Fire Control Officer Gary Bunny, who had come in on the chopper with Westover, organised a search party for the missing camper, Julie Helgeson. No one could forget for a moment that a man-eating grizzly bear was still on the loose, and the mission to recover and save Julie was incredibly dangerous. It had now been two hours since she had been dragged off by the bear. Fueled by the understanding that the girl must be suffering, and that at any moment a rampaging bear could attack them, more than a dozen men made their way through the forest to the campground, and hiker Steve Pierre found the first clue, a trail of blood leading into the woods. The group followed the trail until one camper stopped them. Can you hear that? Terrified, the group stood in complete silence until they heard it again. Help me. It hurts. A tiny voice called through the woods for help. They followed the voice until they came upon Julie. She had managed to survive, although her body was badly mangled. Please help. The party could not understand how she could have survived such a brutal attack. It really hurts, she whispered to the doctor as the party bent over her. Dr. Linden already knew what he was dealing with. Julie's chest had deep puncture wounds that penetrated deep into her lungs. 
With each breath, more and more oxygen escaped through them until it was all but impossible for her to breathe at all. Her right forearm had been chewed to the bone, and both her back and her legs oozed blood. For two hours, Julie had laid in this spot bleeding until her wounds no longer poured out blood. Lyndon demanded shirts and coats from the men in order to cover her and try to keep her body temp from crashing even further, while other campers raided nearby cabins for supplies that they might be able to use to construct a makeshift stretcher. The men brought Julie up the trail to the chalet, where the trio of medical professionals waited with the rest of the guests who had similar medical training. As soon as Julie arrived, they got to work, but only took a few moments for Dr. Lipinski to stop them. Confused, the others demanded to continue to try and help Julie. Lipinski was the only one who saw what was really happening. While the others ran around desperate to help, the doctor recognized that it was far too late. Julie was now in the last moments of her life. Her body had no blood in the extremities, and her lungs fought so hard for every breath that her body contorted painfully with every gasp of air. The doctor gave her an injection that was probably morphine to try and help ease the pain for a moment as the others stepped back, tears in their eyes, and watched Father Thomas Connolly, who had arrived the day before, deliver last rites while holding Julie's hand. Julie let out a final painful breath and was gone. She died from wounds inflicted by a bear attack at 4.12am. As the onlookers stood around, numbed by emotional pain and exhausted by the hikes back and forth between the campground and the chalet, none of them could know that as Julie's lifeless body lay on the dining table, a second bear was terrorising another campground just 30 kilometres across the park. And that is where we will pick up this story in part two of Death in Glacier with the second fatal bear attack that occurred that night back in 1967. We're going to take a break now and we will come back with the rest of our episode. Back. It's honestly such a fascinating story what happened that night in 1967. Um, next week we will pick that story back up and continue with um, yeah an, another incredible story of a bear attack. Um, yeah, it's crazy that for 57 years since the park had opened, there were, were no fatal bear attacks, and then just one night in the 60s, two that occurred almost simultaneously. Uh, it, it, it is. A very strange cosmic coincidence there, isn't it? Um, I won't talk too much about it because we're going we're gonna to conclude that story next week. So let's move on to one of my favorite segments of the show. We're talking, of course, about the scratch of the day. Scratch of the day, of course, the segment where we look at news articles from around the world related to animal injuries, attacks, any kind of animal-human confrontation. We're going to talk about it today. Uh, we've got three quite interesting stories, a couple of them submitted by uh, listeners. So let's go with one of those first. This one is submitted by a uh, friend of the show, Brayson, a day one in the truest sense of the word. Uh, and he said this would probably he sent this on Instagram uh, as a DM. You can do that as well at Man Eaters Podcast. Uh, oh God. Who is this Santos guy? Sorry, it's not a playing a thing. Uh, he said this would be a really interesting scratch of the day story, and I agree. Woman trampled to death becomes the first to die from elk attack in Arizona after apparently trying to feed the animal. This is written by John Hayworth for ABC News. Let's read the article together. Uh, as always, I'm, I haven't read the article yet. Um, I find it fun to learn together because sometimes these things have really sharp turns and uh, tw- plot twists, so... Yeah, anyway. A woman who was attacked by an elk last month has died of her injuries after being trampled by the animal after apparently trying to feed it, officials said. The attack occurred on the afternoon of October 26th on her property in the Pine Lake community of the Hulapai Mountains, some 15 miles southeast of Kingman, Arizona, according to a statement from Arizona Game and Fish Department released on Wednesday. Quote, 
According to the husband, when he returned around 6 p.m., he found his wife on the ground in the backyard with injuries consistent of being trampled by an elk, authorities said. He also observed a bucket of spilled corn nearby. There was no witness to the event. The victim's husband immediately called emergency services and his wife was initially taken to the Kingman Regional Medical Center before being moved to the Sunrise Hospital in Las Vegas, Nevada. She was put into a medically induced coma due to the extent of her injuries, according to the husband. The Arizona Game and Fish Department did not learn about the attack until the next day, October 27th, when a local resident informed a department officer, officials said. On October 28th, another AZGFD officer visited the community, put door hanger warning signs on residences along the road advising people not to approach or feed elk, and spoke with the victim's husband and other residents. While at the victim's residence, the officer observed multiple elk tracks in the yard. Authorities were contacted by the Kingman Police Department on November 3rd, advising that the Clark County a.k.a. Las Vegas coroner's office, had notified them that the victim had passed away. Following the death, following the notification of the death, AZGFD officers went door-to-door in the Pine Lake community and put out more door hangers, warning signs, uh, war- <laughs> door hanger warning signs, along with two roadside warning signs advising people not to approach or feed elk. This is believed to be the first fatal elk attack in Arizona, AZGFD said. However, even though this is thought to be the first death due to an elk attack in the state, there have been five reported elk attacks in Arizona in the past five years. Feeding is one of the main sources of conflict between humans and wildlife. Fed wildlife becomes habituated to humans, officials said. For example, in 2015, two children suffered minor injuries after a food-seeking elk... Elk... Elf... Elk circled a picnic table from which their family was eating at the Hulapai Mountains. In 2021, an adult female received serious injuries from an elk that was habituated to humans in pine. The Clark County Medical Examiner's Office has determined the death to be caused by an accident, and the AZGFD continue to urge residents not to feed elk or other wildlife, and said they will continue to monitor elk activity in the region. The public is urged to keep the wildlife wild. Wildlife that are fed by people, or that get food sources from items such as unsecured garbage or pet food, lose their natural fear of humans and become dependent on unnatural food sources, AZGFD said in their statement to the public. Feeding puts at risk the person doing the feeding, their neighbors, and the wildlife itself. Please do not feed the wildlife. Well, that's a sad story. Jeez, Brayson, thanks for bringing the mood down, buddy. Um... Obviously feel bad for the woman. And obviously the, the big takeaway there is uh, please don't feed the wildlife. Um, as mystical as, as animals like elk can be, uh, they are dangerous, man. They, they can fuck you up. And uh, this woman, unfortunately, did, did pass away. Yeah, there, there's not a lot to unpack. I mean, it, the article is quite comprehensive on what happened. Um, cause and effect. Uh, yeah, just very sad. Obviously thoughts go out to that woman's family. Um, there's a photo. Elk are beautiful animals. I understand the the want, the the, the desire to be near them. Uh, they're they're gorgeous creatures. Um, it's the same with bison. I get the 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 attraction, the pull to try to want to be close to these animals, but you know they are wild. Keep the wildlife wild. That's a good way to put it. Um, because it, do, it it does it does put them in danger as well. It's a selfish thing to do, um, and I think you get so caught up in the moment. Like, I can... I don't really want to put too much blame... I mean, yeah, she shouldn't have fed the animal. It's hard to blame people who this happens to because in the moment, you're thinking it's such a magical thing that's happening. I'm connecting with the wildlife. It's beautiful. And I know I'm not supposed to do this, but hey, like, just, you know, what's the, what's the harm? Um, the situation can, can escalate so damn quickly um, that it might have seemed fine and then she just does, oh, I don't know, she steps backwards, she sticks. On, she steps on a twig, twig makes a sound, freaks the elk out, elk tramples her to death. Um, so it's better to be safe than sorry, and if then just to avoid that kind of thing. Look at the wildlife from a distance. And yeah, don't try to feed them, even, and I'm, not, I'm not even saying she was feeding them out of the hand, just like leaving food out for them, because they do become habituated to relying on humans. And then, um, yeah. 
Yeah, it's like, we've said it many times, not recently, but all man-eater attacks, um, particularly like big cats and stuff like that, like, it's so rare for an attack to be completely unprompted. Um, You know, whether it's feeding the animal directly or like, you know, the chomp white tiger, for example, I always go back to it, but you know, it it only became a man-eater after it was shot by a hunter and its teeth were damaged and its claws were damaged and it couldn't hunt deer. It couldn't hunt its regular game. So it had no choice but to turn to humans. You know, or like other big cats that have like, when you know, there's been like a cholera epidemic and they've just dumped bodies in mass graves, uncovered mass graves. And the big cats, they scavenge on the bodies. They find it's a really easy way to get protein is just to scavenge on dead bodies. And when the dead bodies run out, they'll create some dead bodies, you know? So yeah, it, it's, it's very rare uh, an animal attack occurs on a human and the human has no, uh, you know, nothing to do with it, unprompted, you know, so it's very sad. Uh, let's, let's move on, another story, uh, this one really is a man-eater story, uh, the headline is from, well, let's, look, it's from Malaysia, I think, um, I'm going to do my best to pronounce any, any um, foreign uh, place names, this is from The Independent in the UK, so it might be alright, um, Man-eating tigers blamed for four deaths as Malaysia sounds the alarm. This is a classic man-eaters news story, if there ever was one. Um, it was written by uh, Shwetwa Sharma two days ago, so it's very recent. Here we go. Authorities in Malaysia have captured two critically endangered Malayan tigers after they were blamed for an unpredict- unprecedented spree of deaths among villagers. Tiger traps have been set up in the remote jungles of northeast Kelantan state following a spate of apparent attacks that have resulted in at least four deaths. The latest victim of a suspected tiger attack was a man who was believed to have been mauled in a rubber plantation in Guamasang, Kelantan, on Saturday, just days after a Myanmar national was found dead in the same area. Body parts believed to be that of Lalu Sakuria Yaha, 42 years old, an an Indonesian migrant worker, were found with marks suggesting an animal attack. Kelatan's Deputy Chief Minister Mohamed Mohamed Fadzli said efforts to trap the animals running wild in rubber plantations have been ramped up as he blamed mating season for the attack on humans. Since it is mating season, the tigers are roaming around looking for a mate and food. Some tiger packs are also teaching their cubs to hunt. These are the reasons that these animals are attacking human, Mr. Fudsley said, according to the South China Morning Post. There were two earlier deaths in October, the first involving a man named uh, Pizli Amud, who was 25 years old, who had gone fishing near the forest of Poz Pazlik in Kelatan. Another man from an indigenous community, Halam Asin, 27 years old, was found dead two days later. Authorities have called the spate of deadly incidents unprecedented, saying that only four tiger attacks in total, two of which were fatal, were recorded in five years between 2017 and 2022. The Department of Wildlife and Nature Parks in Kelatan on Monday said that they have snared a tiger in the area and are investigating if the tiger was behind the two fatalities. They said another was trapped in September and the two had been sent to a wildlife sanctuary. Uh, State Director Mohammed Hafid Rohani said traps and camera traps were being set up in Kelatan in the wake of the attacks. He called on plantation workers to avoid working alone and provoking wildlife in the area. At least one of the victims, however, was not working alone. The Myanmar national who died this month, identified as Aha So Ya, 22 years old, was found in the same village as Lalu in Kampang Menato in Guamasang. The rubber plantation worker was working with his wife when he was fatally injured in the attack and died at the hospital after fatal injuries to his neck. The hospital confirmed the victim's death following emergency treatment. The autopsy results indicated that the cause of death was severe head injuries due to a tiger attack, District Police Chief Sik Chun Fu said. I think I'm doing pretty good with these names, (laughs) just by the way, just side note. Malayan tigers are a critically endangered subspecies of the big cat family that inhabit the lush rainforests of Malaysia. 
Known for its striking appearance, the Malaysian tiger boasts a vibrant orange coat adorned with charismatic dark stripes and has been designated the national animal of Malaysia. Only 200 individuals remain in the wild due to habitat loss and poaching, with intensive conservation efforts underway to protect and preserve this unique subspecies. Yeah, wow. Um, <laughs> there's two comments on this. I'm going to read the comments to you. Uh, Parshuram says, Why to blame the tigers? It's the fault of the human population that disturbs and provoke them to attack in defense. Let them live their life, teach hunting to their cubs and reproductive activities. Do we not need them to increase their population? And then the other guy says, He called on plantation workers to avoid working alone, provoking wildlife. <laughs> Note to self, if I stumble upon a tiger, avoid provoking it. <laughs> yeah, good point. Um, to the first point, it's like, yes, you're right. Like, it's not the tiger's fault. We're not blaming the tiger. I mean, we are blaming the tigers, but it's not their fault. It's a tiger. It doesn't... It's it's doing what it does. It, it's being a tiger. Um, but, like, it's too late for that. We're already there. Like, the rubber plantation is already there. People already live their lives there. Um, and, I, like, let's not forget that um, in... I don't know about Malaysia specifically, but we do know in, like, parts of... Um, India and like the subcontinent there like people and tigers they're both native to the area like from hundreds and thousands of years ago like that's people live there and the tigers live there no one was there first so when a tiger would attack someone in a village it wasn't like the humans just moved their village into the forest and we should blame them um it's just it is what it is obviously today it's different with like mass deforestation and and uh, mass you know industry and stuff like that obviously it's different but um i don't think that we're blaming the tigers i mean we are it's their fault but we're not <laughs> we are bl- it, let me restate that the tigers did it but it's not their fault that's kind of what we're trying to say and i do like the other guy's comment um no just stop if i stumble upon a tiger avoid provoking it yeah good good <laughs> good picking up on that I, I noticed that too when i read through their official statements Uh, Let's do one more scratch of the day. This is from Sydney. Sydney also sent in a story. I think this might be the first one Sydney sent in. Um, Actually, he sent a pretty amusing message with it. Let me just see if I can find that. Um, And a thank you to to Brayson and to Sydney for both sending in a a scratch of the day episode uh, idea. And um, Rose as well. Rose sent a... I'm going to do a little sidebar. Rose sent through a message saying, love the podcast. Although I'm not totally up to date yet, I'm almost there. Listening to this keeps my otherwise boring workday interesting. That's lovely. And that made my day. Thank you, Rose. Okay, so Sydney. Yeah, this is his first time he sent us a message. Um, (laughs) The title of this story is Australian Man Survives Crocodile Attack by Biting Back. He says, you've got to talk about this story. Y'all are crazy in Australia. Let's read the story and see what Sydney's talking about. Here we go. CNN reports, an Australian cattle farmer has managed to survive a crocodile attack after biting the huge predator on the eyelid. Yeah, fucking Australia. Uh, Oh, interesting. Colin Devereux. Devereux, same last name as Joan Devereux, who was the park ranger in the story about the bear attack in Glacier National Park. Isn't that serendipity? Colin Devereux told national broadcaster ABC... That's the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, for anyone confused, that he was working along the Finnis River in the Northern Territory when he stopped to check a billabong, which is an Australian term for a pond left when a river recedes. You guys know what a billabong is, surely. You've heard that? Is that not a thing anywhere else? A billabong? Anyway. He could see some fish in the middle of the remaining water and decided to try and catch some before realizing there was something else in the water and turning to leave. I'll do my best uh, Northern Territory Australian farmer accent. <clears throat> I took two steps and the dirty bastard latched onto my right foot. <laughs> Devereux told ABC. It was a big grab. He shook me like a rag doll and he took off past the water about three metres. Pulled me, he said. Devereux recounted how he kicked the crocodile and then fell over with his head near the crocodile's mouth before trying to bite it. I managed to have a bite, he said, but he couldn't get a hold of the crocodile's head. (laughs) Devereux said that his teeth slipped and he managed to get a hold on the eyelid, which he described as pretty thick, like holding onto leather. I jerked back on that and after about a second goes past and he let go, continued Devereux, who then rolled over and ran away. He chased me, I think, three or four metres, but then stopped, he said. (laughs) 
Devereux recalled how he managed to stop the bleeding with some rope and later traveled to the hospital, where he was told he had damage to his tendons and two big slashes just about the full length of the foot. The doctors then cleared out all the mud and bacteria from his wound. They had to spend a lot of time, I think it was nearly 10 days, flushing it, Devereux said. It was hard going for a while. They then fixed the wound with staples and a skin graft taken from above the knee, said Devereux, who added that he has a good that he has made a good recovery. I can bend my toes. I can get a feeling in all my toes, he said. Devereux said he had no choice but to fight back. It all happened, like I said, in about eight seconds. If he'd bit me anywhere else, I think it could have been different. The saltwater crocodile was about 3.2 meters in length, added Devereux. He was really in his prime, he said. Devereux told ABC that the incident has made him rethink his behavior, and now he believes he shouldn't have gone out that far into the, bill- <laughs> into the billabong. I'm a changed man. I'm going to change what I do, he said. <laughs> ABC reports that Devereux, who is in his mid-60s, is set to be discharged from Royal Darwin Hospital this week after spending a month getting treatment for the bite. <laughs> Saltwater cr- <laughs> Saltwater crocodiles, known locally as salties, can grow up to six meters in length, can uh, <laughs> six meters in length, and weigh up to a thousand kilograms, according to Australia Zoo. According to the federal government estimates, there are about a hundred thousand saltwater crocodiles in Australia. Man, hearing stories like that <laughs> makes me proud to be Australian. Honestly, good, good job, mate. Well done. Biting it on the eyelid—that's a disgusting thought, but I guess you got to do what you got to do. I don't think in any world if I was getting attacked by a crocodile I would even think like oh yeah I'll, I'll fucking bite it back <laughs> that's such a stubborn Australian thing to do too oh you fucking bite me well you cunt I'll fucking bite you back won't I <laughs> right on your fucking eyelid you dirty bastard <laughs> classic well, well done that's that's just that kind of um North Australian grit that they have I haven't been to Darwin I haven't been to the Northern Territory at least not while I've been like sentient Maybe when I was a baby, my parents talked to me. Um, I was recently in Cairns, which is far north Queensland. And um, yeah, like they, they do say, don't go swimming. Don't go too far into the um, mangroves. Because yeah, crocodiles are there, man. And they don't fuck around. Saltwater crocodiles are one of the most terrifying animals on the planet. They're like perfectly evolved to kill you. So this guy's really lucky. He, this could have ended way worse. People get ripped apart by um, crocodiles quite frequently up north if bobcatter is to be believed um but it's not like a like an existent like not an ex it's not like a um like a metaphoric threat it's a genuine issue that people in in the northern territory and far north queensland deal with um i'm not sure how south you have to go before crocodiles start popping up um but like it's not like i i don't think like i spent a fair amount of time in um in uh, the Gold Coast in the past. And I don't think they go that far south. But then the Gold Coast is right near New South Wales. I'm looking at the map. Mackay, Townsville. Well, they're definitely in Cairns. So maybe Townsville, maybe Mackay. I'm not sure. Yeah, and the Northern Territory, they're all over the place. Uh, Finnis River. So it's on the other side of... It's it's closer to Western Australia than it is to Queensland or New South Wales. It's far north, man. Jesus, that's... It's... I'll give you an idea of, like, um how... how um The Finnis River is closer to Timor-Leste, Timor-Leste, um, and to Indonesia than it is to Sydney. Like, it's quicker to get to Indonesia than to Sydney or Melbourne. It's a big country. I, I know Americans, you have a big country as well. But for any European listeners, like, I think you guys just can't comprehend how big this place is. Um, when I was in Europe, it's like, yeah, we traveled two hours by bus to go see the um, Stonehenge. And they're like, yeah, and just over the hill is Wales. I'm like, Jesus, I'm nearly in another country. In Australia, if you travel for two hours, you're in Sydney. Me and my partner did long-distance uh, relationshiping for like two years, two hours apart. Um, in Europe, that you could be in a different country with that, but yeah. Anyway, we're going to do a new segment today. Are you excited? I sure as fuck am. Uh, this new topic, it's, it's a topic I've wanted to talk about it for a while, Um because a lot of times with these animal attack stories, you know, we can't get too serious. People died. Um, but sometimes I want to talk about the the human element. And by the human element, I want to talk about which dumb fucking idiot did some dumb fucking shit. So this new sub- subject, uh, this new, sorry, this new segment, this new category, we're uh, 
going to call for the moment until we come up with something better. This is going to be called Wacky Weirdo of the Week. And maybe I found some fun little sound effect to go in there as well. So Wacky Weirdo of the Week. Today we're going to look at uh, the week's Wacky Weirdo. And today's Wacky Weirdo is Adam Robert Corden Britton. Now, what did Adam Corden, Adam, Adam Robert Corden Britton, um, what did he do to end in the segment? Did he, what did he do? Did he maybe like, uh, well, I don't know, did he, did he step on an alligator? Did he, um, I don't know, what, what did he do? Did he, did he go duck hunting and shoot a friend? No, uh, Adam Robert Corden Britton is uh, our wacky weirdo of the day uh, because he sexually exploited more than 42 dogs and was recently arrested. And uh, pled guilty due to animal abuse charges. So we're going to go have a little look into what's happened with him. Um, so I, I'll read you an article. So Adam Robert Gordon Britton is a 51-year-old guy. Um, and about a month ago, he was, um, yeah, he, he pled guilty to sexual animal sexual abuse. He, at one point, hosted David Attenborough. That's how he sort of claimed to fame. So, Adam Robert Corden Britton, 51, tortured and sexually exploited more than 42 dogs and also transmitted child abuse material before his arrest in April of 2022. So, let's read about it. A prominent Northern Territory crocodile expert and former Charles Darwin University researcher has pleaded guilty to a slew of charges of animal cruelty against dogs. Adam Robert Corden Britton, 51 years old, began his offending in 2014 and tortured and sexually exploited more than 42 dogs until his arrest in April 2022. Britton stood calmly as he pleaded guilty to the 56 counts in the Northern Territory Supreme Court on Monday. He also pleaded guilty to four counts of accessing and transmitting child abuse material. Before Prosecutor Marty Ost read out the agreed facts of the charges, Northern Territory Chief Justice Michael Grant urged the public gallery, security staff, and media to leave the court. He said, These facts contain material that can only be described as grotesque and perverse acts of cruelty, which is confronting and distressing, and which, in my assessment, have the potential to cause nervous shock, he said. Either way, I'll leave that up to you, but the potential has been described. Details of the offending are too gruesome to be published, but resulted in the death of 39 dogs. Quote, The offender has had a sadistic sexual interest in animals and in particular dogs, he said. As well as torturing his own dogs, Britain sourced other canines off Gumtree in in Australia, uh, that's like Facebook marketplace kind of, um, from unsuspecting owners in the Darwin region. He often built a rapport with the dog owners in negotiating taking custody of their animals, many of whom had to reluctantly give their pets away due to travel or work commitments, Ost said. The former academic, who once hosted legendary broadcaster and biologist David Attenborough, was born in the UK and completed his PhD in zoology at the University of Bristol. Britain would share videos and images of himself sexually exploiting the dogs on online forums under pseudonyms. A video... Uh, was passed, sorry, a video was eventually sent to the Northern Territory Animal Welfare Branch and passed on to NT Police, who arrested Britain in April of 2022. He's been remanded in custody since then. Britain was a prominent Northern Territory crocodile expert and a senior research associate at CDU's Research Institute for for Environment and Livelihoods. None of his offending is alleged to have happened against reptiles. His matter... Jesus. His matter is set to return to the court on the 13th of December for sentencing. Yikes. Well, I think for sure this week, yeah, our wacky weirdo of the day, which is probably too light of a of a heading for this person, but Adam Robert Corden Britton, congratulations, you disgusting fucking sadistic piece of shit. You're our first ever wacky weirdo of the week. Congrats. What a fucking freak. <laughs> God. What an absolute monster. That's just, it's so terrible. I mean, like, people in courts of laws, they must hear, like, bad shit all the time. So for the judge to be like, guys, um, just listen for a sec. Uh, It's pretty bad. (laughs) He's a fucking dog rapist. Awful. Um, I'm just Googling his name just to see what else. Oh, there's another one here with a weird quote that says, I can't stop, I don't want to. 
Dog rapist sent disturbing telegram messages about sordid urges. Oh, for fuck's sake. Um, <laughs> disturbing messages sent by convicted dog rapist. <laughs> Sorry. Can I just say, um, there's very few things I would write, like, how do I say this? When you describe me to people now, people would say, okay, um, James Chapman, Ch- James Chapman, actor, James Chapman, podcast host, James Chapman, theater educator, right? Those are okay. James Chapman, comedian, maybe stretching it. If at any point in my life, it turns into James Chapman, convicted dog rapist, um, I will have made some wrong decisions. So just putting that out there. <laughs> Disturbing messages sent by convicted dog rapist Adam Britton have shed light on the zoologist's sordid urges. I'll read through this if there's anything we've already done. Details of the life of Darwin crocodile expert Adam Robert Corden Britton have been revealed after the former academic was unmasked as a serial animal sex abuser in the Northern Territory Supreme Court. His name had previously been suppressed from the public due to the depravity of his crimes which threatened his right to a fair trial. Britton pleaded guilty to 60 charges including torture, rape and killing of at least 39 dogs. The court heard of how he referred to the animals as his fuck toys, raped puppies, and, oh, for fuck's sake, and operated a nightmarish torture room on his property in McGinn's Lagoon, half an hour outside Darwin. He also sexually abused his own Swiss shepherd pets, Ursa and Bolt, for nearly a decade before seeking out more dogs to hum on Gumtree. Just two years ago, he was a renowned researcher at Charles Darwin University, known for his work in crocodile conservation with his wife and business partner. Britain used Telegram accounts to engage with like-minded individuals and share images and recordings of his animal abuse and discuss his quote-unquote kill count. I had had repressed it. In the last few years, I let it out again, and now I can't stop. I don't want to, Britain told an anonymous Telegram user. Britain managed to keep these dark fantasies hidden, even from his wife Erin. He and his wife were featured in interviews about their research on ABC News and Triple J's hack. The court heard that Britain and his wife filmed themselves feeding a freshwater. Wait, what? Oh, the court heard that Britain and his wife filmed themselves feeding a freshwater crocodile on their property during COVID lockdown in 2020. Quote, Hello, everyone, Adam here. Well, we're at home at the moment. We've got to feed the crocodiles, Britain says in the video with his wife. So, what I'm going to do is I'm going to hand this camera to Erin. Say hi, Erin. There is no indication that Erin Britain was aware of her husband's crimes. Yeah, I'd hope not. Jesus Christ. She looks like a nice woman. I really hope she had nothing to do with it. He looks like a monster. Like, looking at him, like, yeah, you do look like a fucking dog rapist. Originally from England, Britain obtained his PhD in zoology at the University of Bristol before moving to Australia in 1996. You know what, England? You could have kept him. You could have kept that one. And we could have kept uh, Kylie Minogue. No, we did kind of keep her. Who's an Australian that lives in England that's kind of annoying? I don't know. We'll swap him. He and his wife established a company called Big Gecko, which sold crocodile footage to television and film producers and worked with BBC and National Geographic. Britain was known for self-promotion, frequently updating his social media profiles with photos of his crocodiles and media appearances. The court noted a disturbing Facebook post in which Britain celebrated his Swiss Shepherd's first birthday in 2016 while he had been abusing that dog since 2014. Oh, while he had been abusing his own dogs since 2014. During a raid of his home last year, the police seized computers, mobile phones, cameras, external hard drives, tools, and weapons. Chief Justice Michael Grant described Britain's actions as acts that could only be described as grotesquely cruel, which are both confronting and distressing, and that the details of the case could cause psychological harm to those exposed to them. Britain's name was initially suppressed by the courts, but lifted after he pled guilty. He will be, uh, his sentencing submission will be scheduled for December 13th. Yikes, a fuck. Jesus, yuck, okay, well, (laughs) this might be a very short-lived subject, uh, category, because that was the worst thing I've ever told you on this fucking show, I did say that this was a, boom, red stamp episode, didn't I, so, the red stamp, retroactively I'm letting you know this, red stamp, that applies to the whole episode, not just the main story, so if I do a boom, red stamp at the beginning, it applies to everything, and I'm going to retroactively say, boom, red stamp for next episode as well, okay, that's going to do it, everybody, thank you so much to everybody for listening to this episode, uh, it's it's a really interesting story, what happened in Glacier National Park, and we will go back and talk about part two next week, uh, thank you to everyone who's written in and sent some lovely messages over the last few weeks, it does 
make my day still after two years of doing this um every time i get a message from one of you uh particularly when i've never heard from you before it's it's really lovely so keep that coming i love that if you have any suggestions on like how to improve the show scratch of the day stories ideas for the stories you want me to talk about um please do send those through uh there's many ways you can get in touch with me but the easiest is probably through social media you can send me a direct message on instagram at man it is podcast or on my own uh instagram at jimothy chaps you could also email us at paid uh Sorry, at at manitispod at gmail.com. And we do have a Patreon, patreon.com slash manitis. I appreciate the patrons on there so much. There's only a couple of them, uh, but they've been going with me for like nearly two years. I really, really appreciate it, Dawn and Riley. Uh, You guys have been fantastic. Um, Anyone who wants to join the Patreon, you should do so. Even if it's just for a month, it really does help me out. Uh, And other things you can do to help me out, Include all the regular bullshit, like the episodes when you see them, share them. Uh, One thing you can do that I haven't really encouraged you to do before is go find the show on your friend's phone and subscribe to it on Spotify or on iTunes, whatever it is. Um, That's like one of the best things you can do uh, to get the word out. Thank you, everybody. Thank you for listening to the show. We'll be back next week with part two of Death in Galatia. Have a fantastic week. I love your butts. And uh, stay safe because as we've learned, it's a jungle out there.